Hightower, the Real NBA Fantasy NBA Hybrid Podcast brought to you by Jalen Utsi, Kyle Stein, and me, Michael Kimball. We are in week five and we will be discussing probably almost nothing from last week because today we have a most excellent guest on the Shot Tower Pod, one of my favorite writers about anything NBA, Seth Partnow. He's the former director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks and now an NBA analyst for The Athletic, who will be talking about his brilliant new book, The Midrange Game, the subtitle of which is Basketball's Evolution in the Age of Analytics, which is just out today from Triumph Books. Happy publication day, Seth. Thank you. It has been, it has been a day. Um, among the days, it has been one. No, it's been, it's been really good. It's been... Have you been doing press all day? I've been doing a fair amount of that. I've got a fair amount more tomorrow. Uh, mostly just like watching people post pictures of their copy having arrived. Is really <laughs> yeah. kind of, it's, it's frankly humbling. Just like the fact that people ordered it and then thought enough about ordering it. It's like, hey, I got this. Yeah. This is cool. It's like, yeah. And we want to make cool. sure we, we get the, the title right. The mid-range theory. Oh, I said the game, yeah. didn't I? Yeah. No, I heard myself say it. The mid-range theory, right. It's, 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 I have it wrong in my notes right here. I saw it as I said it. Um, and briefly, the mid-range theory, to get the title right, is it's about data and analytics and how it has changed the NBA game. It's also about how understanding analytics can better help anybody, any basketball fan, enjoy the beautiful game in new ways from a new perspective, from a, with a deeper appreciation. And for all of you fantasy basketball heads out there, the book focuses, uh, I can't remember where, but somewhere in the uh, early uh, chapters, Seth, you mentioned uh, that it focuses on fantasy GM aspects of analytics. And that's something we talk about on the pod a fair amount here and how the playing fantasy basketball has deepened our appreciation and fandom of the game. And I think analytics can do that as well um and and so uh i'm i'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit in a general sense how analytics can help us appreciate love see view understand this game in deeper ways um, i think at a base level it's just a better more detailed description of what happened um yeah so much of what analytics really is in sports is fancy counting we're counting the things that we couldn't count before, the things we knew that were important. Um, you know, you just very simple stuff like um, who, who's taking the most contested versus uncontested or pull up versus <laughs> catch and shoot jump shots. We've known those things are important for a long time. We just haven't totally had the tools to measure them and certainly not to measure them at scale. So a lot of kind of the information that analytics provides is that sort of very simple counting and then by combining those tallies in different ways and in kind of in sequences we start to gain some insights into um not sort of how the game works but but who's really who's really affecting moving the scoreboard um in a positive way for their team um and i think that's when you get down to it i think that's the thing we're trying to get at is is uh, if you're approaching the game this way and i don't want to denigrate approaching it purely from an aesthetic that was cool sense or from a pure fandom, I want my team to win sense. Those are all completely legit and frankly necessary for this to be kind of an industry that I can work in. Um, right. But to, if, you, if you're the kind of person who wants to take, take things apart and see how they work, these are tools that allow you to do that at a, at a much deeper level than you really ever could before. Even if you had all the access to film in the world, that's still, you can only watch one game at once. 
with <laughs> sure. with breaking. I mean, this is not this is not my line originally. This is uh, uh, Rajiv Maheswan, the CEO of Second Spectrum, uh, who I quote in the book. Um, that says this all the time: is that like he can't watch he can't watch a game the same way as a coach can, but he can watch every game at once because he's right. got the the that's what the technology allows. And I think that's the context that allows for is so powerful in describing what's actually happening in basketball. Right. In a sense, the way that statistics, a line of statistics, a set of statistics is showing you hundreds, thousands of basketball games at once. Yes, exactly. And doing so at a deeper level than just like the fantasy tallies are not basketball. They're sort of an abstraction from basketball. Right, right, right. Yeah, I wanted to ask, um, and I think this kind of ties into your answer, like, what made you want to write this book? Um, And, you know, like, what do you want people to take away from the book? I'm sort of thinking about this in conversation with, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, you mentioned something about wanting to, like, embrace a more, a less directed sense of, like, exploration and study after you left the books. Um, And I imagine that kind of thinking is in line with, like, the writing of this book. Well, the short version of, of why I wrote the book is uh, Triumph called me up and said, here, some money, write a book. So that, that's, that's, that that's kind nice. of, hand, yeah, that, no, that is nice. That's a, that's, that's a good way to go about it. I didn't, um, my understanding is that the other way of going about it, like writing part of a book and saying, hey, can I write the rest of it? Um, is much it. harder. It's horrible. It's yeah. horrible. <laughs> so, so I kind of, I, I definitely went the easy way in that regards. Um, in terms of what I want people to get out of it, I think that's, that, that is a, a part of it. I think some of it is sort of a, a, a trying to demystify analytics a little bit. I don't, I don't like the term so much, but we're stuck with it um, because it makes it sound like something other, like there's basketball and there's analytics. Yes. And it's, to my way of thinking, it's just basketball. Like I played basketball growing up at a, at a decent level. I played, you know, a couple of years of division three. I, I have watched basketball my whole life. I've, I've coached a very little bit at a youth level. Um, and it's not categorically different thing to view the game through a, a sufficiently detailed lens of statistics than it is to watch it on tape. And that sort of, um, false dichotomy has led to a lot of the sort of almost fake war between the, you know, the, the, the quote unquote, you know, if, if you want to be pejorative, the quote real hoopers and, right. you know, the, and, you know, the analytics nerds. And I think that when you got down to it, people would agree on a lot more than they disagree about. Um, and, but making it, trying to make it more of a common language was, I think, underpinning some of the book and i'm not sure how successful i was at that so but that's the, the meta I, of the book yeah i wondered if i if i might so i sensed a, a sort of tension throughout the book that i that i thought might be helpful in in you know understanding your approach here because at one level the term analytics makes it seem as though there's only been like one technological intervention in the history of basketball. And it is this sort of new numbers crunching era. And we go from, you know, um, you know, sort of a before game and an after game with that. But one of the things that you, that you know, is that there have been a number of technological shifts and it's actually something we've talked about on the podcast when we, during the pandemic, when there was no basketball, we watched um, a number of classic games. So going all the way back to the seventies, you know, sixties and seventies and eighties and started to notice that um, you could see the game very differently because of the way that the camera people would 
represented. You know, you would get like um, broader framings as you're going throughout the 70s. And of course, when you compare that to where we are now with HD television and, um, you know, we can we can see basically the whole court, whereas, you know, 20 years ago, we were only seeing half the court. You know, so there, there have been like within that sense, there have been like a lot of shifts. Um, and, you know, I think that you point out um, in all of those shifts, you know, basically one of the points was that coaches were able to see the game differently too because of that access to like recorded games, you know, in those those periods. And so the way we viewed the game influenced how the game was played throughout there. And as you point out in the book, um, analytics is sort of um, a new era of this and maybe a different kind of like order of magnitude. Um, but this was the tension that I thought that I got also because in the introduction, you point out that um, statistics don't come naturally to people. Um, the, the framing that um, analytics give us are in some senses counterintuitive. And um, and so part of the, the, you know, this opens up a whole lot of issues where there, you know, there are, um, there are eras of understanding that are in conflict with one another. There are kind of like politics of front offices that are in conflict with one another. Um, and so, um, yeah, basically, I just wonder if if um, if those if you've thought of those tensions as you were writing it, um, and if they inform your understanding. Um, absolutely. Um, there's the interesting thing. It, it's it's top of my mind because, and I forget who wrote it, but someone wrote a, a really good article in the Ringer probably about two weeks ago about how like the it was in the football context, the cult of the coach is dead was some, something like that. And he pointed out that the author pointed out that video is so easy to access and process that if Miami of Ohio runs a play on like a Tuesday by that Sunday, an NFL team could have broken it down and installed that same play. And that's not something that happened before. And I think that's, that's a, a, an example from a different sport, but I think that's, that's, that's a similar kind of change as to, to, you know, just the, the advent of more video, whether it's, you know, uh, satellite technology, allowing all the game, you can see all the games, the improved fidelity of broadcast. Uh, you know, you look at some of those old games and you can't see the corners of the court. It doesn't really matter because no one was standing in the corners, but <laughs> Not at all. You, couldn't, you, you couldn't see the corners. Um, Nobody approached the corners. Yeah. Those uh, games. So, you know, th that part of it is different. I think that one, I think one of my favorite chapters in the end was the title chapter where I, I, I hopefully I, I did a good job of, of breaking down how it's not just like the, the technology of analytics, but it's, it's, you know, it's a, a complex combination of its rule changes. It's differing skill sets of players. It's trial and error of coaches kind of, kind of realizing new things. And then you add in maybe that little hint of, of kind of, of sort of mathematical understanding that may not have actually been possible prior to, you know, a, um, the just, you know, very basic, you know, quote analytics is, you know, shot coordinates, seeing like, like a dot on the court where a shot came from. Uh, before we had that, you might have, you know what, uh, you take a step in from a three point your percentage goes ways up, way up. After we had that technology it was pretty easy to see actually no your percentage doesn't really change that much from about eight feet to the three point line till beyond the three point line. So why not take the step back, but that's that's an empirical question, not one that you can, you know, readily discern just from the naked eye. So that that very basic bit of counting technology on top of the strategic and rule change and, and allowing you know the Kevin Garnett's and the Lamar Odoms to play facing the basket 
all combined to, to do this thing that now quote analytics gets all the credit slash blame for in terms of the number of three pointers in the game today. You know, and I thought it, it seemed felicitous that your book came out today when we have the Nets and the Warriors playing because you, you know, I love so cause, <laughs> yeah because I love the I love that line at the end of the chapter where you're like the the um, the new rules and analytics um, they didn't um, you know banish the, um, the, the mid-range game um, they turned it into a diamond and it's like a wonderful um, you know uh, example of it here because you have you know ESPN and every was actually like TNT tonight, but you know, the whole sports complex is all about this, this Steph and, and um, Kevin Durant meeting up again. Um, and of course um, in your formulation there, Kevin Durant is one of the very few players whose shot is so good that they can take it from anywhere and can capitalize on that new kind of um, zone in the, in the mid range going up against um, kind of the darling of the analytics era in Steph Curry. It's it's a it's a perfect summation. Yeah, it's it's you know the it's sort of a, a coaching truism that the the best shots your team can get are the ones your guys can make. Um, and if you have Kevin Durant, it's like sure, any shot, take it. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, good shot. Well, let's talk a bit more about that chapter on the mid range theory. I mean, in a sense analytics led us to all the three pointers which then opened up the mid-range game in a new way and while the number of shots hasn't changed from that well i mean it, it has in the sense that all of those longer jumpers are now three pointers but the true mid-range game the number of shots there is only dwindled a little but the importance of them has gone up quite a bit and you talk about um in it uh, that, that those are the most important shots in basketball now the star shots which is about bucket getting and it seems like it's a kind of leverage point for what i like to think of as beautiful basketball it's sort of it, 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 some of the most fun teams to watch are the ones that function well in these spots that's what we saw with the phoenix suns last season um well in this season too uh, and and so uh, i'd love it if you talked about that but i'm also wondering is in the way that the mid-range game has opened, might the next step be the post-up game opening, or will we need a rule change for something like that to happen? So to answer your second question first, um, I think we're going to need some rule changes for the, the post-up game to really come back. I think it's, it's too easy to make that area of the floor hard to operate in right now with kind of the, the help and recover and the you know digging down on the post. And the fact of the matter that the players who tend to be good at posting up are going to be the players who are less adept passers and ball handlers, just right. you know, by skill set. Um, to get back to, to to your other question in terms of of how the, the like the good utilization of the mid range allows for beautiful basketball, I think that's I think that's right. Like the heart of of good offensive basketball is drawing two to the ball, and so the guys who can take the ball from outside of the, the three-point arc basically be covered and like, okay, if you don't bring another guy to me, I'm going to score. Either I'm going to get all the way to the rim and score, or I'm good enough at this, these, these middle areas to, to score. Now, from a pure number standpoint, very few maybe are. Um, 
it, it gets kind of complicated. You know, what's a, you know, what is a wide open shot from the mid range? There actually aren't that many sure. taken. So we don't like, if you just, if you just like let Chris Paul shoot from the elbow, I don't know. We have that. We have a good understanding of what percentage you'd shoot on those. Right. Um, but it's threatening enough that nobody lets that happen. So they bring help to that spot, which then right. opens up, it opens up the kick. It opens up the lob. It opens up the yeah. pass. So that the ability to, when we, when we're talking about teams not having enough offense creation, that's a lot of what we're talking about is the guys who can, who can threaten those areas and make the defense do something to open, to allow other players to be open. I want to ask a follow-up then about that defensive help that's coming. Uh, You mentioned that it might be a mathematical mistake to send that help on D because of the seams that opens up for other things to happen generally. Is there another way to approach that? Should teams not be sending that help D? I think the NBA has started to get smarter about no, about realizing when to help and when to not, it's not, there's still some instances of overhelp, but even from five years ago, the, the number of times where a player will run down and help on a guy going nowhere just seems like it's a lot less. And I, I don't know if there's, if I have a good way of quantifying that. Um, there are, there are some other ways I know there's, there's a, you know, very basic like shell defense drill, um, which, you know, it's, it's, you know, the a coach passes the ball around the perimeter. There's five guys and you kind of move into your help positions or whatever on the defensive shell, um, as the ball is moving around, there's a part of that drill where the coach takes a dribble, everyone sprints to the ball and slaps it and runs back to their guy. Well, that's, that's, that's how, no, that's how, that's how it was, you know, when I was, when I was yeah. coming up now, I've been told that at my old college, like the guys in the corner, when the ball gets dribbled there, they don't go help. They press up on their guys. Uh, so just that yeah. change to, to like, okay, no, your job is, your job is not to, your job is to take away the kick. Your job is not to help because you're not going to be able to get there in time to do anything. Yeah. So you just don't let that guy shoot. Yeah. And, and nice. so there, there are, like you can you can do drills like that to kind of train new habits because part, I think part of the reason that the overhelp was so ingrained is that's something you've been taught at every level of basketball is you know the help on the drive yeah and you know yeah. and and you know as but NBA defenses are more more sophisticated so there's times where it's like no we're fine with with that you know backup point guard dribbling to his left hand like <laughs> right. parallel to the basket. <laughs> Do whatever Let you're going to do. Yeah. 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 It, it, yeah. No, I was just going to ask uh, on that point. It seems like, I don't know, Toronto has been doing some weird things lately where they help off the strong side corner shooter and to different effect. And I don't know if you have any information or thoughts about that. But my my other question was simply like, I think you make the claim in the book and you can correct me if I'm wrong that like. Um, you know, teams are always trying to take shots from efficient spots on the floor. And like, we have an understanding of where those efficient spots are with obviously the fact that it matters who's shooting them. But I think what happens is, and you talk about this in the sort of, you sort of speak to the the fan response sometimes that is like, um, the game is homogenous, right? Like everyone wants to, it's dunks and threes, right? This pejorative that people use to talk about the modern game. But obviously, you know, that's not true. And you know that even though the teams want to get the shots from the same spots, they go about getting there very differently. So I'm wondering if like, you know, are there any statistics that we can point to that show the difference in how those teams get to those shots to like make it more interesting and bring those people into our love of the NBA again? 
Yeah, I think that's that's something we almost do as a disservice when we reduce kind of shooting to just dots on the floor, because that's the end point of that's not where the shot was created from in most places, most most standpoints where the guy ended up shooting it. You know, a corner three isn't the guy in the corner didn't probably didn't do much for that shot to be open. It's something else happened somewhere else in the court. But yeah, the shot happened from the corner and everyone likes that because those are good shots. But I think that I wrote an article on this a couple of years ago where I was looking at the sort of um, homogeneity between, you know, some basic offensive actions as measured by like synergy play types. And it really, it really hasn't changed that much, or at least over the time that we have somewhat reliable synergy data. I mean, the, the sort of the, the, the equilibrium of the mix between, you know, pick and rolls and isolations and post-ups and stuff like that has changed. It's obviously, we, you know, we're in the league now is much more pick and roll than it is post-up compared to, you know, what it was 15 years ago. But the, 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 the divergence between teams and their mix of those play types is about the same now as it was then. And I, that's, that's sort of a very blunt way of looking at it. But, you know, the, the Denver Nuggets and the Milwaukee Bucks play nothing alike. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, I think, I mean, you just look at their, their offensive engines and it, and it should be obvious why, you know, like Nikola Jokic does very different things than, than Giannis and Takumbo. They're both very good and they both end up in sort of similar end effects, but how they got there and how they got there is the entertainment part of it. And so we need to do a better job of, of kind of describing that rather than just say, oh, he took a shot from the left corner. So when they took a shot from the left corner, so the yeah, same, same. Um, when really everything that happened between is the interesting bit. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the ways that watching basketball and analytics line up is one of the most obvious ways for the more, I don't know, casual fans, the lineup changes we see. And, you know, this season we've seen the Nets, Lakers, Warriors, other teams trying out different lineups. You know, they're looking for that analytic pop, the right group, the right mix, um, that sort of thing. Um, it's, and, and so what I'm wondering is, are there other things like that that a more casual fan can pick up and watch as sort of a way into analytics. That seems like one of the easier ways to me is to sort of showing fans that this mix is a better team, you know, better offensively, defensively in these ways. Are there other things like that that fans could be watching for? Um, I think just re like recognizing, you know, two for one situations. I think that I do talk about how that's, it's a little bit overblown, the, the impact of it, but it's the kind of thing that it's, uh, it's sort of free money if you can do it. If you can, yeah. if you can get the get that shot with like thirty four on the on the, the game clock, and just noticing that like which player, especially if you're a fan of a team that has say Kyle Lowry or something like that, on like right. how Steph certain Perry. players are just very yeah, certain players are just Chris very Paul. adept at getting <laughs> yeah. that shot at that time. And right. it doesn't always have to be a great shot, but it has to be a decent shot. Yeah. And um, for everybody who hasn't read the book, he does, Seth does a great breakdown of the really simple math ultimately involved there. If you're considering all of the variables on, on both sides of this offensive, defensive opportunity, amount of time it takes to get a, 
get a good shot, initiate the offense, all of those things. It was sort of a fascinating breakdown of the two for one, which gets played up all the time in sports broadcasting. Like they, if, if that opportunity arises, the, the, the broadcasters don't stop talking about it. But the effect, as you point out, um, yeah, I, I will never forget that as I watch another NBA yeah. game. Uh, yeah, just, be, just because the analytics lays out what that actually looks like. Yeah, and, and I'm biased as a Steph Curry fan, um, but I feel like he's a good way to start appreciating analytics. He took a running one-legged three-pointer like last yeah. week, so um, <laughs> yeah. and it went in. It went in. Just just so we're clear. Um, but speaking of Steph Curry, I was curious. I mean, you can't really write a book about analytics without talking about the three-point revolution in the NBA. And I was just wondering if you had any insights now, having you know worked inside an organization and been outside it as to like both why it took so long uh, for the people to accept the three-point shot. And then also just the question of like, was it ever a consideration how open in particular deep threes were? Uh, because I've sort of always thought just anecdotally like that those, particularly when they come in transition, obviously, but those are sometimes quite open shots, even though they're, they're deep and therefore you would think difficult to make. Uh, but yeah, I was just wondering if that openness was ever a consideration. Uh, specifically on the deep threes. I mean, it's, it is something you look at, but there, I think that the number of players, it's going up kind of every year, but the number of players that can that can shoot sort of um, even open uh, with, with any sort of reliability, like out past about 27, 26, 27 feet, shot distances kind of get wonky once, the, the, once you get out there, especially in without access to the kind of the full tracking data, because... Um, there's not really a point of reference for the scorekeeper to put the dot necessarily once you get out of, at a certain distance. Um, but I think that, that uh, they, they are more open, but a, the number of players who are capable of making that shot at a rate where it's wise to react to them taking it is pretty low. Um, I think that it's, you know, prior to this year, I would have said it's basically Dame and Steph and maybe Eric Gordon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, injury, like Dame has been injured this year. So that hasn't been a really a part of his game. Maybe Trey is getting accurate enough at that shot that he's someone you have to chase out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, um, once you get out there, you're probably what you're getting, what you're getting in openness, you're probably giving back in kind of that shot being really damn far. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily, that might be a worthwhile trade-off. I mean, part of the reason why, you know, when, when Dallas's offense has been good in the last couple of years, part of the reason is because Kristaps Porzingis will stand at like 27, 28 feet from the mm-hmm. basket. And like, he's not a 40% shooter from out there, but is a good enough shooter that you have to at least consider guarding him. And that's a long way to get from, you know, contesting a seven, three guy at, you know, 28 feet from the basket to get back into the lane, to try to bother Luca. So that, that space is as much of a consideration as the shot itself. Yeah. Which you, which you bring out so well in the book of like how important, like the corner three is almost more about the space that it creates for the stars to have more space in the mid range to hit those star shots. than than the shot going in, you know, like you said, if the person is taking a corner three, they're probably not creating the shot on their own, unless it's like rockets era, James Harden, who was taking step backs from everywhere. 
Um, yeah, I don't know if anyone else had any other questions, but if not, then I know, Michael, you also were sort of curious about um, steel. So in the book, you know, a lot of the chapters, uh, they talk about this kind of like black box of our understanding of how we measure defense and how to assign credit on defense and like steals feels like the one nugget of information that we know is like sort of useful to have I think you talk about how steals uh, equates to IQ or we think it sort of equates to IQ and the ability to read the game um, and be in there and have the athleticism also to be in the places uh, where they need to be to get the steal um, so yeah I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and about that relationship um, I, I think you mentioned it and it made me think of like steals almost as stat cast data in baseball where, um, like you said, if a, a player is sort of coming back from injury and reintegrating, they might not be getting the steals, but you know, once they're fully healthy, those steals can sort of return. So yeah, I just wanted to give you the chance to talk about that. I think that, that steals and especially are like for college players. That's the one thing like this guy can play indicator. And it's like this guy can play either because he's that good an athlete or his he is he's either moving faster or moving earlier because he's seeing things faster. Um, and so that's that that's the sort of the indicator there. It's it, it's funny because it's almost from a, a college to NBA projection. It's uh, you know depend, you can look at this any number of different ways, but there's been a number of studies that have found it being to be much more predictive of NBA offensive production than sort of defensive production because it is, it is capturing sort of that, you know, all that stuff that happens sort of between the counting, the traditional counting stats that makes up whether a player is, is kind of, you know, can play basketball. I, I know that's a sort of almost a, uh, a tautology, but you know, the, the, the all those, the, the player who does all those little micro, the, like the 10 decisions you make every second mm-hmm. about what to do on the floor that making those decisions well are what separates, you know, bad players from good players and good players from great players. And the players who are combination of, as you say, you know, fast enough, but also quick minded enough to be in the right spot to get their hands on the ball in that way, that, that tells us something about that, even if indirectly. I love the idea that the steals are the best predictor of NBA success. And then somewhere else in the book, uh, you talk about how steals can be overvalued and aren't quite as valuable as some teams seem to think they are, that the sort of gain in another sense, just in terms of pure game score, isn't as great as we sometimes think it is. It's one of those stats that it's a representation of something good that isn't yeah. always the thing itself. Now, yeah, generating a turnover, always good. Generating a live ball turnover always very good. Um, and scoring easily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and, yeah. Right. yeah. But it's who, also, who it's in, oh, it's, I was going to say, it's, in, oh, it's, it's interesting from a fantasy basketball perspective because I would have had, as a general fan, this impression that steals are rather rare in a certain way. Um, and that, you know, because Chris Paul with his, you know, long streak and whatever, 2006 or seven, you know, what it was. I mean, he wasn't getting a ton of skills every game. He was just getting one or two or three, you know, every here and there. Um, but one of the things you start to understand from fantasy basketball is that really like the like average um, steals per player um, is 
quite high. <laughs> that that um, you know, it it um, getting one steal for per game in a fantasy basketball context is really not that good. Um, and so um, it I, just yeah, I, I I didn't mean to interrupt you on no, on, on that, but it was just basically like I feel like it shows up in other places how abundant they really are, and how you you would need more added value probably in terms of like the like accumulated number of steals or or something that you know. Or, or more to the point, if your value is primarily defensive, there's you're not gonna you're not going to get enough steals to if that's literally all you do for that to justify your place on the court. Right. You have to do you have to do more than that. Like that's that's really good that you do that. But you also have to do more than that. And that's sort of in the you know in in our a lot of valuation models. It's it's sort of picking up that these other things tend to come along with steals. So it's not, it's, it's like, okay, the, the, you know, uh, yes, it's the, the college player who got the steal, you know, did, did that thing cause the turnover, created a fast break, went the other way. That's a certain degree of on-court value from an aggregate standpoint, the player who does that a lot usually has these other things going on. And that's the same thing when you look at it from a, you know, like the box score analysis in the NBA is that it's, it's, for the it is on aggregate picking up on these other things which are kind of drivers of winning but that doesn't mean that every player who gets every steal is doing those other things equally it's just saying sort of on average you know there's and and that's and that's true across a number of stats but i think that uh especially for kind of some of the defensive stats it's the the uh the connection is a little more attenuated than it is for some of our offensive stats which we I think at this point, especially with the tracking data, just have much more a much more granular understanding of. You you talk in the book in a bunch of different places about your time with the Bucks, and I'm interested in. And you do extensively. Uh, you break down the the Bucks signing of Brook Lopez and how analytics helped to lead to that. I was fascinated by it. He, he he's a guy I love and hate on my fantasy teams because of his pro, poor rebounding numbers, which you know just yeah, it's bad for fantasy to have a big who rebounds for a game. But in what I was fascinated by was that the analytics showed that his team still rebounded well. And then to, to um, that, that extended also to his brother, Robin and his team's rebounding well, and that that probably indicated they are doing some really pro, you know, advantageous things for their team that were leading to this team rebounding. Um, so I'm interested about that, but I'm also interested, were there any other time, were there any other um, uh, times with the Bucks where analytics led to a signing that led to this championship that we just saw last year? I mean, Brooke Lopez was was instrumental in, in that to some extent. Were there other things that analytics um, pointed to for, for players who were on that team? Um, this, this is always a tough one, uh, because there's a lot that goes into each decision. Sure. And I, I, I don't want to, like, I never want to say that, oh, analytics made that decision because again, that's, that's sort of getting back to the point we made up front. And that's, that's treating it as some sort of sure. different thing where it's these decisions. Part of the reason these decisions are hard is you have to, you know, there's six, eight, 12 different streams of information that are coming sure. into you and they're yeah. all sort of in different units, different currencies. Yeah. And so you're getting like your, your, you know, your in-person scouting, you're getting your, your character and background, you're getting your medical, you're getting, 
you know, what your coaching staff thinks of how it fit in the team. You're getting players who've played with them before, whether they like him or not. You're getting, you know, some statistical analysis. Uh, you do the, the, you know, the con the contractual salary cap analysis and you're juggling all those things at once and trying to come up with the best decisions. So I, it's really hard to say like when, like yeah. the statistical piece is the, the tipping <laughs> sure. point for that. Um, in terms of, of I, like, I don't, I, like, you know, they, I, I don't want to. That was a key bit of information though. Like yeah. being able to yes. frame the team yes. rebounding with something analytics yes. brought to it that, I mean, he, even without that, he would have been, I think he would have been a good signing for what we got yeah, him for because, sure, absolutely. because yeah. he, I mean, the, the other sort of bias that, that's involved there is, you know, this is something you see where a player who is, who is kind of is, is overpaid relative to production gets thought of as being a bad player instead right. of he's just overpaid and like, okay, you, you take that same player and put him on a minimum contract. He's awesome. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> it's a huge value and yeah, a great player. So, that's um, in terms of, of other decisions that I don't, don't want to claim credit necessarily, but the fact that I was singing the praises of Drew Holiday as, a, as, a, as an excellent kind of two-way player for three solid seasons, I, hopefully that had some like lasting impact in people's minds. But at the same time, like he was the best available, the best player readily available on the market kind of at a position of need last summer. So you know, did, did that help make the decision? I don't know. I was, I wasn't in the room anymore, so I, I can't say, <laughs> but I mean, you know, you, you, you hear things, you hear things enough. Maybe they, they, you start to, you start to, they just stick in your mind. So yes, I was saying that Drew Holiday was great for a long time. So hopefully that, that helped with, with that decision um, to, to, to trade for him. And, and, you know, he was obviously a, a very key part of, of the Bucks winning a title last year. And I don't want to, Eric Bledsoe's still struggling um, in Los Angeles now, and I, I definitely don't want to pile on. But I, I, I want to, I, I want to ask, um, you know, sort of given the new context that we have, and sort of seeing him continue to struggle, if you did you see any sort of analytical warning signs that um, that his production um, would fall off like this? Um, so, it's it's a tough one. Um, because there, there's at a certain point, like there's, there's aging, there's other factors that play in. Um, I think that, you know, I, I don't want to play psychologist, but I think that, you know, some of the well publicized playoff struggles, like affected other parts of, of his game. And, and, you know, I don't think he's the first player for that to happen. Um, and they certainly won't be the last and, and certainly like affected kind of the organization and uh, you know, the other players relationship to him. Um, and yeah. So how, how much of, of, you know, that is age related decline, how much of it is him not having a particularly age resistant skill set? how much of it is uh, you know, that him having a skill set that is much more regular season, uh, durable than necessarily playoff playoff durable. I don't know. Those are those are hard questions, and those kind of get outside. I don't want to say outside my lane, but those become much more qualitative than quantitative questions very quickly. Well, and there, but there are some quantitative answers, and you get into it in some really interesting, accessible ways uh, in one of the chapters of the book. I can't remember which one, but you're talking about where playoff some good players 
all of a sudden don't because are no longer good players in the playoffs. And part of that reason is, and you use the example of a small forward who's the uh, I want to oh, say loser, I think right. I mean, let's say he's the tenth best small forward in the league out of 30 teams hey that's pretty good you get to the playoffs there are 16 teams or 20 now however you want to count it now all of a sudden there might be you know over half of the small forwards are actually better than carlos boozer some of those may not have made the playoffs but all of a sudden he's now just kind of an average small forward in this context instead of a good one and and i found that fascinating just the 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 simple math of it as you reduce the number of players all of a sudden you know some guy who we always thought was good isn't good oh i think so there's there's two there's one is sort of the the random small forward then there's the specific so that's just sort of the, the yeah. math of, of, of the increased competition as you get deeper right. in the playoffs. Then there's also, I think Boozer is maybe more of an example of, uh, you say players who uh, don't play as well or aren't as good in the playoffs. I would, I would say that, that they are, it's, it's really two different games. And the, the game, the regular season NBA game, NBA's game, you know, not, not a game, but the game itself and the playoff game have always been a little different and they're have never been more divergent. I don't think than they are now in terms of, of what matters. Um, and we see this, you can see this a little bit in other places too. I mean, different players are better in FIBA play than they are in NBA play. And some of that is role with team, but some of that is also Ricky kind Rubio. of, yeah. Well, some of that is, you know, in, in the international skill set in the international rule set with, you know, you're allowed to, you know, you're allowed to hang in the paint and you can take the ball off the rim and stuff. Rudy Gobert is a top three player in the yeah. world in right. un, <laughs> under international rules. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't mean he's, he's like, um, doesn't necessarily mean he's better or worse at basketball. It's just like the environment that they the game is being played in necessarily affects who is good and how good. And so the differences between the regular season and playoffs mean that, okay, this, this is a very good player in a regular season in a playoff context. He might be less. So he might have, he, he might have specific weaknesses defensively that are easily exploitable. He might not have a very, uh, he might not have a varied offensive game. And so he's able, easy to game plan for and right. you take his first move away and he's done. He, he might not, he, he might have a specific, you know, you know, in today's day and age, he might not be a good shooter and therefore you, or he might be a reluctant shooter. So he just doesn't get guarded in the playoffs and, and that screws up everyone else on the offense when he's on the floor. Um, and just the, the nature of, of kind of preparation and, and sort of, almost almost meanness that happens in the playoffs it's like, like <laughs> right. no nope, i'm gonna pick on that guy Apologies. i was gonna ask um as i know Sorry. we have to get you out of here in a couple <laughs> a couple of minutes i wanted to ask well like hopefully we'll have time for both but one question is fine so the fun question is like in tim bontemps uh, wrote the forward um timmy good times as we like to say um and it says that you two argue about things often and anyone who's like a big fan of nba media knows tim bontemps likes to argue about things so no one is surprised by that but i am curious uh, what things were you two arguing about uh what basketball things were you two arguing about and then my second question was uh if you've read uh dave Hick- essay the heresy of zone defense because your uh your comment about the cult of the coach dying made me think of that um i 
I, I think I might have read it. I, it, it sounds familiar, but I'm not sure if I have. Um, in terms of what Tim and I argue about, uh, yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> um, no, there's, there's, there's some things that like we, we agree on certain things, but when we disagree, it's uh, vociferous and uh, um, neither of us are above sending gloating text messages to the other. That way. <laughs> That's good to know. Seth part now uh analytics genius also every man gloating text in the group chat so I mean maybe this will do more for for so, uh, I, so I can tell you by the way the public sphere I can tell you by the way that that the, the group texts like within a like a, a front office or or like a an analytics group and the and kind of the the message board on your fantasy league aren't that much different in terms of the <laughs> amount of in terms of the amount of shit talk that goes on so like, oh, that's, there's your guy, your guy really, really lit it up last night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As we saw in, uh, uh, in the Bob Volgaris, uh, article, we saw some of that, uh, although whoever was anti Duncan Robinson, I'm not so sure about this person. I, I gotta, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie to you. I, I did not think Duncan Robinson was going to be able to stay on the court in the NBA. I, I mean, that's, you know. that's fair. I mean, it, he, he can't stop fouling. I, I feel like at this point he needs to learn to avoid, just get out of the way because I don't think the officials are going to give him any respect anytime soon. And obviously his like defensive weaknesses mean that he's constantly in foul trouble. He was like, I think he was hot the other night against the Jazz and then picked up two quick fouls. It feels like he should just avoid the fouls and take the bad defense at this point. And that's, you know, but that, that that's again part of the the – he's a weird player archetype because he's got this one elite skill and it's, is the everything else good enough to allow him to utilize that skill? And that's, you know, you go back a little bit and that's the difference between say a Kyle Korver and a lot of kind of the, the kind of elite shooting prospects, you know, the, the Corey Kispert model of guy is Kyle Korver was so much better at the everything else than he's really given credit for. He's, he, you know, he may not have been an all defense level defender, but he's a good defender. He's a good rebounder. He's, you know, got his hands on balls, a good passer, moved well off the ball, all these other things that, that made him, you know, a viable guy who could play 30 minutes a game and not hurt you until he kind of aged out of that right. uh, in an NBA game. But that, that's, it, that's, that allowed him to, and on top of that, he's like one of the five best shooters of all time. So that's a pretty good player. One of the other things you cover in the book is the pitfalls of the draft and how GMs aren't so great at it in part because they haven't had a lot of reps doing it. Um, it just, you know, happens once a year and most GMs aren't in that position for all that long. Um, it struck me that one of the, the, the issues here might be just the human, the difficulty humans have with effective forecasting. We're not good at predicting how good or how bad things are going to be. Oh, I think, um, there's, I think there's a hard upper bound on how, quote, good at the draft we can be. Like sure, it's, it's, sure. You know, no, there's it's, so much randomness. It's just, you know, between when, a, like, you're drafting, a, uh, you know, at many points now, an 18 or 19-year-old, you're drafting him for what he's going to be at 23 and 20 and like the amount of just like the amount of shit hap that can happen yeah. and there's no other way to put it than say shit happens the amount that can happen between 18 and 20 in anyone's life like let right. alone like their basketball life their their personal life that that is is either you know caused by them or not complete like you, wrong coach get traded pick the wrong agent your business manager screws you all these these things you get like you get your you're Sean Respert, you get sick. Like, you know, all these things that, that can happen um, just make it super hard. And in, in, like, even with perfect information, 
I think we would like, there would be a ton of misses in the draft. Right. And then you, you layer the fact that like the college game is not really like the NBA game and the international game is not really like the, in the G league game is not right. really like the NBA game. And it becomes very difficult. It's a sure. very difficult task. And Do so, reps help then? Is there a way for a GM to get more rel- reps in, a, in, a, in you know, some practice sense that would so, actually help? The, so the reps thing is more, more like in, encouraging going through like uh, a process of like not doing, you know. Decision making. Not doing, not doing like the Gladwellian thin slicing. Gotcha. This is, this, this is so, something that, that it, it uh, it comes i think this is a quote from daniel kahneman where it's it's like okay if you have a lot of if you do an activity a lot of times like a player on a court making decisions they have they have enough reps so their instant in the moment intuition is good enough that they'll make the right decision and that's that you know on some level of extreme nerdiness that's kind of the definition (laughs) of playing basketball well um, but you know, again, you, you, you make two draft picks and even, even you put a, put together a big board of, of 60 guys of which there's maybe one or two ranges you actually care about. You do that once a year. That's really not a lot of reps because the feedback is not awesome. It's not instant. Right. It's not, it's not true. It's not, I mean, it's not, it's not, uh, necessarily, uh, indicative of the quality of the decision at all because of that, 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 you know, that shit happens factor. Um, so they're, they're like, so it's not a, it's not a, an environment where, you know, intuitive decision-making is likely to produce good results. So you do have to go through like a, a very stringent process to try to, um, extract what the useful information from all of these streams of, of gathering, whether it's, again, it's the, it's the scouting of college tapes in person. It's the talking with the, the background from the coaches, the academic counselors, the, the, it's, it's, you know, psychological tests, it's medical, it's, it's, you know, is, is the family a pain in the ass to deal with? Like, you know, how will right. we fit with our team? How will we fit with our team in three years? Do we care how well, how he fits with our team? <laughs> Sure. Um, all, you know, all of those sort of things, right. um, you, you know, that's, again, that's, that's a bunch of different streams of information of in course. different units that you have. And, you know, I, to me, it's, it doesn't, it uh, trying to turn to wing that, that weight weighting of those. Right. Doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, tr- it's a tough uh, decision to have to make. Is there anything to be learned from like a little mellow ball, like pre-draft conversation and like where it wound up? I was thinking about in reading the book, you said steals, you know, can equate to IQ, uh, but also off ball defense can also equate to like your ability to see the game and read the game. And like, obviously the clips of Lamelo's off ball defense were quite bad, even though he yeah. was getting steals. Yeah. By his first NBA game, he's like, oh, no, 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 never mind. Like the, sort of the question, the questions you, some of the questions you had about Lamelo were just like instantly gone. Like, okay, no, he's playing hard on defense and he's giving up the ball instantly. Okay, I'm I'm good here. We're good. He's, right. We're, this is gonna this is gonna work fine. Like, because a lot of the, the the like the stuff that I liked about Lonzo as a prospect that I didn't see Lamelo do, he instantly did when he got to the NBA, and he didn't really do like because he never played college, so he played like you know this this like super, you know, I can do anything I want AAU style, which it's a, that did like the, like the, you know, the, his, his dad's sort of like, you do everything kind of thing. Um, 
there's actually some there's an interesting kind of divergence of opinion as to whether or not LeVar Ball is a you know player development genius or he just happened to have 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 two savants as children yeah and the answer yeah. might be somewhere in between yeah like, right. but it but, seems like he they were just playing in hyperspeed their entire life yeah. so like it's like well this is sort of normal now yeah yeah <laughs> um but then so like the things that, that lonzo did at ucla was he you know played passing lanes he read he got loose balls he he for a player in an on-ball player with the hype that he had his willingness to give the ball up fast get the ball up the court, give it up to other players was super impressive. And you didn't see that any of that from LaMelo. And then you put him in a context where he's playing with action with good players and it's instant. He just did that instantly. It's like, Oh, okay. That's good. Uh, so I, Seth, this is fascinating stuff. Thank you for answering all of our questions. Thank you for writing the mid range theory. As our guest, you get the last word. What would you like to say? Oh boy. Uh, well, first of all, thanks. Thanks for having me. And I'd like to, you know, all the listeners who have, have bought the book and, and supported it and frankly supported me to the point where someone wanted me to write a book. It's, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm frankly humbled by it. It's uh, it is um, pretty surreal that this is like something that I started as a hobby kind of not really that long ago <laughs> is now, I now like wrote a book that is a physical object that people are buying and reading it's kind of weird um, and surreal, but I'm 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 immensely grateful both to you guys for having me and for, like I said, you know everyone for for supporting the book and and my writing over the years. Yeah, it's real and it's a great thing. And that is this episode of the Shot Tower Pod. We are turning off the phantom power. Cheers. So can I use your Sean Respert uh, uh, reference um, as a segue to sure. a tweet that you had? Um, <laughs> because So this places me, the Respert thing. So Michael and I are both Michigan State alums. And, um, and I will say that watching Sean Respert when I was a teenager was one of the most electric things I've ever seen. I loved him. Just he was, a, he, you know, he was... He was one of those guys shooting, you know, five feet beyond the three point line in the mid nineties when like people did do that. And uh, it was just so exciting. Can I, can I interrupt you? Can I interrupt you? Yeah, so you can fan please. Out? I was on a, I was on a panel with him this summer. Oh, uh, that's, so, <laughs> yeah. that's so great. Super, really nice guy. Really, really enjoyed my time with him. Yeah. I, I was such a huge fan and that was of course, before I went to college there, you know, I was just a kid there, but um, I have kind of a similar reaction um, now because I'm a big Michigan sports fan. I have a similar reaction to Cade Cunningham and um, I am, I have like a child like glee watching him. And, um, and there are, there are things like, I don't ever expect him to be like a LeBron James, but there are ways where, you know how you can watch a game that LeBron is in and he's just so just commanding of the situation that um, he can put up 25, eight and eight, and you didn't even notice it, you know, and it just didn't even seem like he was that he's, involved. He's Thanos at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the thing, <laughs> the thing is, is that Cade just put up 25, eight and eight, exactly those numbers um, last night. 
and um and i thought he similarly just did it in this you know you almost didn't really know what was happening he's like uh you know just kind of like going with the flow of the game um and i i use it because i saw that you tweeted um what a lot of people point out which is that like casey is putting the ball in killian hayes's hands and he's saying go run the offense and what it's turning into for much of you know the the their time together on the court um with Cade and Killian is that Cade is standing in the corner um just a spot up shooter um and I I of course have a, a couple you know of like follow-up things about this because I've basically watched every Pistons game here but um but I wanted to like hear you elaborate on that it's, it's a little reminiscent of Kate at Oklahoma state where he's playing with like not good players and they're not good in a very specific way that makes it hard for his skill set to express itself. Like the other, the other like quote best players in Oklahoma state were all like guards who couldn't, who could sort of get a shot off, but not actually do it well. Um, and so there's just a little bit of, of reminiscence of that. Well, um, I, see, this is the thing is because I think, Killian is getting the brunt of people's reactions about Cade taking on the, this um, very secondary tertiary role um, on the team. But when I watch the games, I have um, as much of my um, frustration with that directed at Sadiq Bey and, and Jeremy Grant too, mainly because the two of them have to take a couple of dribbles and make a decision here or there before they'll give the ball up. And what, you know, lead offensive players, whether it's going to be Killian or Cade, should be able to give the ball up to get it back. Um, especially if you warn you about Jeremy Grant, Kyle. If you're if you're, you. yeah, if you're as <laughs> if you're as dynamic as Cade Cunningham, you should be able to give the ball up to get it back. And when Sadiq and Jeremy get the ball, it just never comes back to him. At, at least with Killian, there are times when I'll see him like dish the ball back. And actually, I, I don't think that Killian is is going to always be um, so terrible. Um, I've liked what I've seen, but with it, with the, the development in his three point shooting, he's do, taking it with a lot more confidence now. Still young. I don't know. I love them. I love the Cade and, and Killian trap on defense, too. They just get at it. So no, that's a good point you have about like, you know, Sadiq is like, this is this was sort of something that was predictable when they they acquired Jeremy Grant and gave him this contract. Now it's actually worked out better for you than I thought it would in terms of his actual ability to at least kind of be an averagey efficiency player in this role on his own. But yeah, he and like these are guys who should not really be doing nearly as much handling of the ball as they do. <laughs> Um, now, some of that is just like the talent level in the team is such that like, okay, guy who should be your, you know, fourth best creator is, is your second, is, is operating as your second best creator. And that's ugly. Um, and so that's, that's almost that that's to me almost, and maybe, and this is, it's entirely possible. This is a different evaluation of the player of, of killing Hayes in particular. That's that my annoyance is more that I don't think he's any good. And I don't think he, and I don't think he is going to be any good. And just having him do this thing and Cade going and standing in the corner bugs me. Now, if you think, if you think Killian is, is has potential and is going to be good, then it's like, yeah, I get him some reps. And Cade is a, is a good enough off ball player that we can space him out. some. it's like, okay, like I can, like, that's, that's a difference of evaluation of the player. And that's fine. That's a, it's a perfectly fine agree to disagree moment. But but that's 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 a little bit where I'm coming from, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I mean, I think odds are that you'll be the one right on this, but um, you know, yeah. fans, <laughs> optimism springs eternal. I, I, I let, um, the reply guys got after me about that one, so you know, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're you're well represented. I was I was one of them. I, I, oh. I well as the shot tower pod, but, yeah. but, but yeah, under there. the mask of the yeah. shot tower yeah. pod. <laughs>